Welcome back to Dictatorum, episode 1.8, A Post-9-11 World Brings Relief. Last time, we looked at how Gaddafi dealt with Islamic extremism in the 1990s, and how economic sanctions in the wake of the Lockerbie bombing gradually eroded away the country's economy. Gaddafi eventually relented and allowed the two Lockerbie suspects, Abdel Basset al-Magrahi and Lamid Khalifa Firma, to be tried in the Netherlands under Scottish law. This time, we'll see how the outcome of the Lockerbie trial, as well as how 9-11, worked in Libya's favor and allowed it back into the world's good graces. Furthermore, we will examine how Libya's diplomatic and financial well-being continued to improve right up until the Arab Spring. In January 2001, Fairman was found not guilty of his suspected role in the Lockerbie bombing. Al-Magrahi, on the other hand, was found guilty of the murders of the 270 victims, despite a lack of convincing evidence. Libya decried this decision and claimed it was all political and not based on the truth. Al-Magrahi was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment, which he would spend in Scotland. Demonstrations erupted in Libya, and the colonel promised to provide evidence of Al-Magrahi's innocence within days. But there was also hope within the country that everyone could now put Lockerbie behind them. The United States was not quite satiated, though, and demanded that Libya pay the families of the victims. After months of wrangling with the senior ministers, many of whom saw no other way to escape the devastating economic sanctions, Gaddafi conceded. Libya would pay $10 million to the families of each of the victims. Libya also took responsibility for the bombing. Sort of. Gaddafi took responsibility for the actions of his government's officials while not taking responsibility for the bombing itself. Al-Magrahi only served eight years of his sentence and was released in 2009 on humanitarian grounds due to prostate cancer. He died in Tripoli in 2012. The conclusions of the two trials and the reparations to the victims' families paved the way for the sanctions to be lifted. Gaddafi would of course continue to claim his country's innocence, but now Lockerbie could cease to be a thorny issue and Libya could move on. But still, America was not satiated. It saw Gaddafi as a loose cannon. And not just any loose cannon, but one that potentially had weapons of mass destruction. Starting in the 1980s, Libya had begun the process of attaining materials for the construction of nuclear and chemical weapons. This was helped in part by the Pakistani nuclear scientist A.Q. Khan, who is now an infamous figure that helped North Korea, Iran, and Libya obtain nuclear materials. Khan helped Libya in particular procure a number of centrifuges critical to a nuclear program. After years of dealing with Iraq's unruly leader Saddam Hussein, who employed chemical weapons against his own citizens back in the 1980s, America was keen to prevent another of its adversaries from obtaining chemical and nuclear weapons. By the late 1990s, the Clinton administration made the abandonment of weapons of mass destruction a key policy issue in regard to Libya. The Bush administration continued this policy after his inauguration in January 2001. On September 11, 2001, 19 al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial airlines and crashed them into the World Trade Center in New York, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and a field in southern Pennsylvania. The world was in awe and horror, and the United States quickly vowed to take revenge on the perpetrators. 
Although there were no Libyans directly involved in the attacks, Gaddafi could see the writing on the wall and immediately tried to distance himself from any suspicion of involvement. Within two months of the 9-11 attacks, Gaddafi capitulated and signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which prevents the testing of nuclear weapons. A little more wrangling, plus the Allied invasion of Iraq in March 2003, and Libya performed an about-face on chemical weapons as well. By December 2003, Libya had agreed to dismantle its chemical weapons. It's speculated that the brother leaders saw how quickly American military might could dismantle even long-established regimes like Hussein's Iraq, and decided he didn't want to be next. But we've got to remember, Libya had been trying to repair its relations with the West since at least 1992. Maybe the coalition invasion of Iraq in 2003 was the straw that broke the camel's back, but Libya had been keen to get out from under sanctions since their inception. Not only did Libya give up chemical and weapons in its nuclear program, which hadn't actually produced a nuclear bomb, but immediately after 9-11, the brother leader began to share intelligence information with the United Kingdom and America regarding Libyan Islamists spread across the globe. In March 2004, British Prime Minister Tony Blair visited Libya and signed a major gas exploration deal. By August 2004, Libya and the United States have restored diplomatic relations, and the U.S. lifted the last of its sanctions against the Gaddafi regime. As early as 1999, Gaddafi opened up Libya to foreign investment, but after the sanctions were lifted and after Libya agreed to world economic practices put in place by the International Monetary Fund, the floodgates opened. By January 2005, 11 huge energy contracts were awarded to American companies. After years of looking from the outside in, Western companies would now be able to invest in the Libyan energy market for the first time since the 1970s. During this time, a pro-Western oil economist named Shukri Ghanim was appointed to the post of Prime Minister. Western economics were truly coming back, but after years of economic mismanagement, sanctions, and being a welfare state, the transition would be painful. Ghanim desperately tried to reel in government spending by ending a number of subsidies and by cutting the number of government employees who drew salaries but didn't do anything to earn them, so-called ghost employees. This effort was hampered by both the Libyan people, who didn't want their subsidies and jobs to disappear, and also by Gaddafi, who publicly supported Ghanim, but who consistently contradicted him. In 2005, Gaddafi made a declaration that the Libyan security services needed to employ 100 to 200,000 more Libyans, which kind of makes it hard to downsize. The state sector already employed 800,000 Libyans directly, or 13% of the population. Ghanem attempted to garner more revenue by increasing utility bills, but that also ran into domestic resistance. The biggest problem was Gaddafi's old guard trying to protect their privileges, which Ghanem's reforms promised to erode. Remember that Gaddafi's Libya resembled nothing if not a large patronage network with Gaddafi at its pinnacle. Ghanem's reforms would have upset this delicate balance, and regime insiders stood to lose from it. Therefore, they low-key sabotaged Ghanem's every move. Ghanem planned to privatize more than 300 government-owned companies, but due to protectionist efforts of this old guard, only about 40 went through the privatization process, and most of those were pretty small. At the same time, though, 
private businesses were opening on their own. They were all almost universally small affairs, but still, for a country that had only known Gaddafi's brand of socialism for the past couple of decades, this was quite the change. Some of the larger enterprises that sprang up were owned by people with high-level connections to the regime, and some of these businesses were owned by the Gaddafi family itself. Regardless, internet cafes started to open, and new western hotels were built to accommodate the growing number of expatriates coming into Libya to live and work. Ghanem lost his job at the prime ministerial post in 2006, but despite fears that Gaddafi's short flirtation with something resembling a free market had come to an end, the economic reforms he was able to put in place were for the most part permanent. During this time, Gaddafi's second son, Saif al-Islam, had come of age and stepped into the position of unofficial regime spokesman and dealmaker. Saif al-Islam had attended university in Austria, spoke English, and was a champion for a free market economy. At the Davos summit in January 2005, Saif al-Islam declared, The old times are finished, and Libya is ready to move on to a new stage of modernization, which will be conducted in a well-organized manner that ensures new ownership, and ownership by the people of Libya, not just a small class of oligarchs like in Russia or Egypt. Saif al-Islam built some of those larger companies that were tied to the regime, and they grew into sort of a media empire, al-Ghad. This media empire was just unregulated enough to allow citizens to express grievances against the state, within limits, or complain about a lack of goods or services. It was a far cry from a free and open press, but it was also a huge turnaround from Libya's official press, which was of course full of universal praise for the regime. Saif al-Islam became the country's unofficial spokesman at international forums and a champion for the little guy inside the country. Of all of Gaddafi's children, and he had like seven of them, Saif al-Islam was the only one to really get into politics like his father. He got his start in the 90s but really found his stride during the post-9-11 period. In the mid-2000s, he headed up a committee to draft up an honest-to-God constitution for Libya. Now this document wasn't planned to change a whole lot in Gaddafi's Jamakaria, but it was going to include a Bill of Rights, a heretofore unheard of document in Libya. But the committee was doomed to failure. You see, Saif al-Islam couldn't make up his mind. He constantly came back to the Constitutional Charter Committee with new ideas for this constitution, some of which contradicted his previous ideas. Not only did this committee suffer from Saif al-Islam's constant mind-changing, but also from the elder Gaddafi himself, who rejected the draft constitution that was presented to him. Even if proposed reforms came from his own son, he couldn't take the drafting of a constitution, and the aging colonel squashed the project in 2008 after it called for an elected official to eventually replace Gaddafi. But still, Saif al-Islam was increasingly seen as the most likely candidate to replace the elder Gaddafi. He cultivated ties within Libya's old guard, with the tribes, and even in Cyrenaica, which had long been neglected by the Gaddafi regime for its support of King Idris. Just like his father, Saif al-Islam did not have an official position within the government, meaning he couldn't exactly be fired or really held accountable for his actions. By maintaining relations with the old guard and starting a nascent reform movement, Saif was both hedging his bets 
and increasing his chances of success for whatever it was he was trying to do. Gaddafi's other sons also vied to replace the colonel. Mwatasim, the next in line after Saif, was an army man and more conservative than his brother, as well as more widely accepted by the old guard. Hamis, Gaddafi's youngest son, was also an army officer, which sat well with the regime elite. All of the dear leader's children got involved in Libya's burgeoning business sector. Gaddafi's eldest son, Mohammed, took control of the communications sector. Saadi became head of the special forces and had business interests in sports, construction, and car hires. Even Gaddafi's daughter Aisha had lots of businesses, which was fitting for the daughter of a man who had in his own way championed women's rights in Libya. Where there was business in Libya, you could find one of Gaddafi's children involved. All of them became filthy, fabulously rich. But the lavish displays of wealth that the Gaddafi children favored were in stark contrast to the elder Gaddafi's austerity. The boys were known to throw wild, extravagant parties both in and out of Libya, even hiring Western pop stars to perform for them. Hannibal's wife reportedly chartered a private jet to fly her new dog from Beirut, Lebanon, to Tripoli. And Saif al-Islam was rumored to travel with a white tiger, while Aisha's engagement ceremony was a scandalous affair with flowing bottles of champagne and Western music. By contrast, ordinary Libyans were trying to eke out an existence inside the Jamaharia. Politically, little had changed, and even though goods could now be seen in the markets, they were still too expensive for most people. Services were just as absent as ever, and the huge bureaucracy made getting official business done an exercise in patience and frustration. The slow boil that had been just under the surface for years would soon start to burn over, and when it did, Libya and Muammar Gaddafi were both in for a rude awakening. Next time, we'll explore how the arrest of a human rights activist in Benghazi, along with popular revolts in several other Arab nations, will pull Libya into the Arab Spring and ultimately lead to the downfall of one of the world's most long-serving rulers. Mm -hmm.